We return to our discussion of the PR Hill and Knowlton firm and their manipulation of American public opinion. I think the other things I just want to mention is that this is a public relations firm is hired. I think what's important to know is that according to the article as well, this was widely publicized. There was a video news release to MediaLink, a firm that served nearly 700 television stations in the United States. Hill and Knowlton had filmed the hearing and, and dispersed it in this manner. That night, portions of the testimony aired on ABC's Nightline and NBC Nightly News, reaching an estimated audience between 35 and 53 million Americans. President Bush, George Bush at the time, and several senators cited the testimony in their affirmations to use force in the war in the following weeks. Iraq denied the allegations. Uh, the main point is that members of Congress who would have voted otherwise admitted that these false facts brought them on board to endorse the U.S. attack on Iraq. I think finally, the, the last notation I just want to make on this subject, it's important for our understanding of how U.S. foreign policy works. You'll notice that the agent for this information is Citizens for a Free Kuwait. And they, in 1990, after the firm Hill and Knowlton was approached by Kuwaiti expatriate in New York and agreed to collaborate with Citizens for Free Kuwait, there was a million-dollar study was conducted to determine the best way to win support for strong action. So apparently Hill and Knowlton or this firm, whatever, conducted this uh, study at the cost of $1 million to its client, and the firm had the Worthington Group conduct focus groups to determine the best strategy that would influence public opinion. In other words, it's not what is the truth, it's how can we fix the facts around the policy, the famous UK Downing Memo. In other words, we don't care what the facts on the ground are if they don't comport with our foreign policy interests, we create new facts. And it also reminds us of, of Ahmad Chalabi. And, and Chalabi, if you're not familiar with that name, Ahmad uh, Chalabi, he was the former head of the Iraqi National Congress, uh, and that was a CIA-funded Iraqi exile group that helped drum up pre-war claims that Saddam Hussein was developing weapons of mass destruction and had links to al-Qaeda. And so this guy, Ahmed Chalibi, he provided the Iraqi sources to journalists and Congress members. Uh, many throughout the Central Intelligence Agency thought he was a fraud or did not trust his information, but the Pentagon firmly did. These Congress members uh, ultimately said Saddam Hussein was developing weapons of mass destruction. This is what Shalabi said, that the WMDs are being produced. Saddam Hussein, he had links to al-Qaeda, all of which turned out to be false. So he was part of this government group, the INC, that was CIA-funded and was going to be taking over Iraq according to this plan by U.S. interests. So these are just two examples of how we have been manipulated and misled by the highest government entities our country has. Uh, we also uh, have spoken at length uh, on this show on a number of other misrepresentations that have been left unaddressed, such as the Russian bounty story that proved to be without any basis or at least no evidence to 
to support it, yet it's been widely used and continues to be used. I mean, Biden and Kamala Harris have used it since their election, and they're not being called out by the media. And this is this foreign policy misrepresentations that get the American public to feel that we are under aggressive attack when we are when when the United States is in fact the real uh, the real aggressors. The point of this segment is really to point out that when you hear that another country has some type of democratic movement that is against the government that we are trying to get rid of or in some other way are involved with, the chances are these are folks that are somehow funded by NGOs, non-government organizations that actually get money or at the very least support common interests that our U.S. foreign policy is pursuing. And it's a very lucrative business. And at the end of the day, it, it confuses the more naive news reader into thinking that we're supporting democracy when, in fact, we are intervening in the sovereignty of another nation's internal politics, not for their own interests. It would be our it, it, it still wouldn't be all right, but it would be better if at least the people of that country, the majority population, were better off as a result. But they uniformly are worse off. And it's the corporations, these multinational investment corporations that are reaping the benefits at the cost of those majority populations. It, it is like an inverse relationship. The more misery that is created in these countries often results in the greater profiteering of these companies. And we are intervening in the sovereignty of another nation by fiddling with political parties, trade unions, and those sorts of things. Things that if another country did that in our country, they would be thrown in jail and dealt with accordingly. So to end the segment, just want to turn back to uh, a couple of these vignettes that we've been talking about that kind of point to the character of our foreign policy. In addition to the 2013 Syrian gas attacks that was alleged by our U.S. government to be executed by the Syrian government, yet no evidence was ever presented to support that allegation. We talk about the Kuwaiti testimony that led to the first Iraq invasion that was fabricated by U.S. government interests. Quite frankly, the overwhelming majority of foreign policy claims that have led to U.S. intervention throughout the world in the last few decades has been shown to be unsubstantiated, empty allegations, no evidence, no evidence of substance, or a lot of contrary evidence that contradicts their allegations as well, such as the Salisbury Skirple poisoning. Where's the indisputable evidence that has been claimed? It's non-existent. It has never been shown to the U.S. public. Or the MH14 downing over the Ukraine that was immediately blamed on the separatists and blamed on Russia. Again, it's very unclear as to what happened in that scenario, if you're an honest broker. And if you study history, the Bay of Pigs, for instance, is another example in which airplanes were painted with Cuban insignia by U.S. CIA agents in Nicaragua flown into Florida on the day of the Bay of Pigs invasion. And we were told that these were pilots from the Cuban Air Force defecting from a ruthless government, when in fact they were our own pilots. 
It was all put together in order to confuse and to sway American public away from the truth and to justify another unjust intervention. These are facts, historical facts that are worthy of your attention. We have a very long history of deceitful attempts to manipulate the American public into foreign policy actions that do not serve the needs of the majority population. They are not national security issues. They are issues that help line the pockets of those that have tremendous amounts of money to be made. And most of them have been highly successful for those elite interests, but at the expense, the enormous humanitarian expense of the majority populations in which they have occurred. This is documentable and measurable. And we have done both on this show. So when Kamala Harris says, who are you going to trust? The Russians are our own U.S. intelligence. I wouldn't trust either one. And that's the point. We need to create our own intelligence. And that's really what this show is about, trying to put forth honest interpretation of what our real national security concerns should be versus those are fabricated in order to promote profitable wars for a very discreet group of people. Okay, so we wanted to end the show today with a excerpt from a part of our show that we had with Gregory Shupak. He's a professor from Canada that we had back on October the 5th, 2020 on Libya. The excerpt will set us up for a continuation on the subject next week. So this is excerpt from that October 5th, 2020 show, and will provide an important introduction into our celebration of Black History Month, a discussion of Libya and the criminal invasion and overthrow of the most advanced country on the African continent under the false pretense of responsibility to protect. Special guest, Greg Shupak, professor of media and English. I was very struck by the fact that they were claiming there's this humanitarian pending crisis, which later proved to be greatly exaggerated, and that, in fact, at the time, Libya was 53rd ranked in the world, that was 2010, in the Human Development Index, yet we were trying to convince the American public that there was this great humanitarian disaster of a country there that the government needed to be replaced. And in fact, at that time in 2010, not only were they the 53rd leading country in the world Human Development Index, but they were the number one highest Human Development Index country in all of Africa. So just by deductive reasoning, we should, everyone should, and certainly we did on this show, said, well, wait a minute, you know, why would we be so concerned about the country where people have the best quality of life of the entire continent of 54 countries of Africa, yet claim that they were in such dire straits, comparatively speaking, by falsely citing Libya as a humanitarian crisis and choosing to arbitrarily impose the responsibility to protect doctrine. Can you take us back? You teach in Canada, of course, was part of this NATO-led intervention as well with the United States, a major actor. Can you, first of all, take us back to 2011? And then also what we want to get done tonight is to look at where this country that had the highest quality of life index of any country in Africa, where it is some nine, ten years later with respect to quality of life of Libyans. So, again, thanks for joining us. Yeah, no problem. Thanks. 
thanks for giving me this opportunity to talk about this important issue. So, yeah, I mean, you, you've been talking a bit about propaganda, and uh, so you're right, absolutely, to point out that uh, the notion of a uh, humanitarian emergency in Libya was greatly overblown in uh, mainstream media coverage uh, in the days and weeks leading up to the NATO invasion. So one of the uh, major propaganda talking points was the idea that uh, Gaddafi's air forces were allegedly bombing protesters. This was a talking point repeated ad nauseum. But uh, at the time, um, even the U.S. Secretary of Defense Robert Gates and Admiral Mike Mullen maintained that there was, uh, and this is a direct quote from Mullen, quote, uh, no confirmation whatsoever, end quote, that such bombing was happening. There was a 2012 uh, UN Human Rights Council report on the, on, the, on the fighting in Libya that did not attribute aerial bombardment of protesters to Gaddafi. So this was reported as though it were fact, the bombing of protesters, um, however, there was uh, far from uh, airtight evidence uh, suggest, uh, you know, proving that. Um, another key topping point, talking point uh, was the idea, the closely related idea, that Qaddafi's forces were about to enter Benghazi and carry out or commit a genocide there. Mm-hmm. This was one of the absolutely crucial parts of the narrative that helped sell the um, UN uh, Resolution uh, 1973 that was kind of a a fig leaf for the regime change operation. So there there simply wasn't evidence that a genocide was, in fact, impending. Alan J. Cooperman, who is a U of Texas at Austin professor, uh, had pointed out at the time in one of the few critical uh, articles, articles that was critical of uh, the propaganda, that is, pointed out that Libya's air, po- air forces had been targeting rebel positions, not civilian concentration. So again, mm-hmm. calling into question this idea that they were bombing protesters. Kuverin also pointed out that Gaddafi uh, had never threatened a civilian massacre in Benghazi. Um, he had certainly used very inflammatory rhetoric, but he had not claimed that he was going to carry out a, a large-scale murder of civilians, which is what Obama was claiming. Cooperman also at the time pointed out that there was, you know, in, in the world today and world then, there's ubiquitous cell phones taking videos and pictures of everything, and yet there was no evidence of these so-called aerial bombardments of civilians that were supposedly indicative of, uh, of a pending genocide. If you look at the reports from the time, from sources like Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch, neither of which are immune from sometimes parroting U.S. State Department paradigms uh, uncritically, these human rights groups, they uh, were putting the casualty figures or the number of dead civilians in Libya at the time in the range of, of two to 300. This is not trivial, the, the deaths of two to 300 civilians. However, it really doesn't begin to approach what is typically thought of as the threshold for an imminent genocide. Yeah, they actually claimed it was, was 6,000 or three to 6,000 were killed. Those are the reports 
that uh, turned out to be a, a couple of hundred. So, like you say, every life is is invaluable, but the exaggeration was obvious, right? Yeah, and I mean, there's obviously no shortage of civilians being killed in those types of numbers, unfortunately, routinely around the world, very often by NATO forces themselves, as NATO would go on to do in Libya. Let me ask you this, Greg, because that's a really, really good overview. But let's take a step back. To, you, you were talking about Benghazi, right? So just for people that aren't familiar with the geography of Libya, all of their main population centers are along the, the northern coast there by the Mediterranean and, and such. And Benghazi's in the northeast sector there. And, and, and the reason I wanted to bring that up is that there was, in 2007, there was a report from West Point. They were captured... Al-Qaeda files. I think it was over 700 or maybe not quite that much, but over 600 files of Al-Qaeda personnel. And they overwhelmingly were concentrated in specific areas of the world, namely Riyadh in, in Saudi Arabia. But surprisingly at that time, a very significant percentage was in Benghazi, okay? And also Darna, another city that's in that northeastern sector east of Benghazi on the Mediterranean. So it's it was interesting that precisely where this uprising was occurring was, and, and Gaddafi had even mentioned that there was these al-Qaeda cells in this area. And it turns out that, in fact, uh, Bruce Rydell, he's a former CIA officer and a leading expert in terrorism. And, you know, he, he had told the, the Hindustan Times, the India paper, that there's no question that al-Qaeda's Libyan franchise, the Libyan Islamic fighting group, is part of a significant part of that, of that opposition. And so as you follow, and I did follow, and Cy Hirsch reported on it, what he called the rat line, the movement of arms from Benghazi to al-Qaeda rebels in Syria. Again, this was confirmed by Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter Cy Hirsch. From Libya down into Syria to fight Assad, which predominantly became a jihadist opposition, okay, I mean, at least the backbone of the military opposition down there. What history has shown us, and what was obvious at that time, or at least the inclination or at least the possibility, and we were reporting this, it was not a popular uprising. It was an uh, uprising of, at least militarily speaking, that part of the uprising was spearheaded largely by the very terrorists we claim were fighting a war against. Are you familiar with with that part of, with the Libyan opposition at that time? Does that resonate at all with your <laughs> understanding? Yeah, so I mean, I would say that there were there was a dimension of what was happening in Libya that was that it, it included popular elements, and I think that we saw much like in Syria, multiple things happening at once. In part, a popular uprising, and also a a faction of the opposition that was essentially a uh, proxy, or at least would become a proxy of internet of. Uh, of other uh, international actors. And yes, in both cases, Libya and Syria, a huge component, and certainly, ultimately, the dominant military component in both cases was of, of a sort of uh, religious uh, reactionary character that, that did indeed carry out and have continued to carry out 
substantial violence against civilians. And yeah, there's no doubt that that was a, a major force in the Libyan opposition. Um, and this has been one of the you know, major consequences of the 2011 overthrow of the Libyan government is that you've had, you know, nine years now of, of really quite brutal fighting between various factions of armed groups, including ultimately the emergence of an ISIS franchise in the country. And the, there's been little to indicate that the fighting factions in the country have had some kind of uh, commitment to democracy and human rights that of, of the sort that was invoked in order to justify the invasion of Libya. And as was pretty clear at the time, I want to mention, uh, this, I wrote about this for, for Alternate when Gray Zone was at Alternate back in, I think, 2017. The, the U.S. government and other players in NATO knew perfectly well the, the uh, character of the, uh, the forces they were helping bring to power. Uh, there was significant evidence of not only the sort of what people sometimes call, you know, jihadist or Islamist nature of the of the group, but I think, you know, I'm more inclined to describe them as religiously oriented and, uh, and ultimately just conservative or reactionary. So not only was it known that this was the orientation of the group, but it was also quite clear that the groups, many of the these opposition groups were rather, certainly including LIFG that you had mentioned, uh, rather racist towards the black population that was in Libya, black Libyans themselves, as well as migrants who were in Libya. Um, and so we've seen extreme violence since then, uh, both during and after the NATO assault on the country that has specifically targeted black people. And, you know, perhaps most egregiously the return of slavery, but also, you know, widespread mass rape, or during the 2011 phase of the war, the ethnic cleansing of the Tuerga, which of Tuerga, which was a uh, mainly black town. And this was all, this was reported here and there, drips and drabs in U.S. media and international media in the days and weeks leading up to between when the, the uprising and response to it started in Libya mm-hmm. and and when the invasion actually started. So it's not as if the leaders of the NATO countries didn't know about it, right? If the L.A. Mm-hmm. Times right. knew about it, they knew about it too. CNN actually was reporting on the slave, actually as recently I think as 2017, as a slave that was trade. when the video emerged. Yeah, right. Oh, that was when the video emerged. Okay, my bad. And so that that, yep. that video was back in 2012 or something like that, or within a year of the of the deal, maybe. Or so. let, let me ask you, first of all, I just want to remind our listeners that we are visiting with the English and Media Studies professor at the University of Gulf Umber in Canada. That would be Greg Shupak. And let me, before we get to, because that's a really important what you're saying, it's not only did they have the highest human development index of any country in Africa? But as a result of the U.S. and NATO-led overthrow of that government, slavery returned. Selling slaves is what we're talking about, returned. The butchering of publicly of blacks in Libya, uh, many who had come to work there in other part, from other parts of Africa as well, was occurring. It reminds me also of what happened in the Ukraine, that once the Ukrainian government led by a U.S. coup was overthrown, 
what came into power for the first time in the history since post-World War II were neo-Nazi-ridden cabinet positions being held by neo-Nazis, okay, like a half dozen or more. We've documented that on the show, and we won't go back into that. But this is under the Democratic Obama-led administration that you have these neo-fascists going back into power in the Ukraine. You have this, this hideous development that, you, that you're explaining in Libya with the re-enslavement and terrorizing of blacks. What, what I wanted to do, though, if I could, Greg, before you go forward, just back up to, you know, what is the potential motive, you know, in 2011 then? So we can rule out humanitarian concerns based on all of this evidence that the, the quality of life has just gone to pits and now it's a terrorist haven after being the highest human development index deal. You know, there, was, there, there were reports that are very well documented that Gaddafi, being such a wealthy nation, they weren't always wealthy, that after their 69 revolution, there were a lot of changes that occurred. But one of the things was that the Gaddafi government, the Libyan government, they actually financed uh, African satellites so that the Africans could not be continued to be saddled with these payments of like 500 million U.S. dollars per year to use Western satellites and that they launched this program and completed it and were no longer on the hook to pay these extravagant lease fees of some 500 million dollars annually. And, you know, of course, France was one of the main beneficiaries of that 500 million dollars a year contract. So we need to end the clip there, and we will pick up with our discussion on Libya next week. Thanks for joining us, and see you next week. Please stay tuned for our local music mix that comes up next. To our listening public, thank you for joining us once again. Please email any questions, comments, or interests to pgatos00 at gmail.com. We take you out as we do each week with Land of Naivety. See you next week. Check out the book.